This is an ABC podcast. New York, the city of skyscrapers. I know Chicago gave birth to them, but New York is synonymous with the ultra-vertical. The taller, the better. And now it seems, the thinner the better. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. I suppose what really shocked me is that over the last few years, every time I went to Manhattan, there was a new, incredibly kind of slender stick poking up above the skyline. And initially I thought they were just the kind of elevator shafts of forthcoming skyscrapers, you know, because they were that kind of proportion, just a kind of very stripped back spare core kind of rising above everything else. The closer you get, you realize these are finished buildings and they're just unlike anything that New York has seen before. I mean, we all know it's the kind of cradle of the skyscraper, but these buildings that have been nicknamed, you know, pencil towers or beanpole towers, I described them as a, a leggy planet given too much fertilizer you know they look like one of those shoots desperately climbing higher and higher for light all kind of marching down 57th street which is nicknamed billionaires row each trying to get kind of better views of central park i'm oliver wainwright and i'm the architecture and design critic of the guardian towering urban inequality and issues around density that's our focus today. New York, a place where form has always followed finance. All of the major skyscrapers of the 20th century have been a product of, of a kind of insane excess of wealth. But I think it's got to a stage now, you know, there's an incredible kind of public housing crisis in New York. People are being pushed further and further out. These buildings are taking up plots, you know, which could have a proportion of affordable housing. And because of Manhattan's, it's called as of rights, you know, these buildings don't have to go for planning permission. They have the right to be built without any kinds of checks or balances. It means these things are happening often without any additional affordable housing, you know, being provided as a kind of quid pro quo as you would get in most kind of planning systems elsewhere in the world. I mean, it's just seeing kind of New York's air basically given over to a kind of super elite, often an elite which will never inhabit these homes. You know, they, they've been described as um, safety deposit boxes stacked up into the sky. They're purely investment units, not kind of real people's homes, essentially. New York's pencil towers first began appearing around 2013, and one of the new towers currently going up will stretch more than 400 metres into the air, while being only 18 metres across. Now, to give you some perspective, 18 metres is about the width of just four mid-sized cars parked end-to-end. Oliver Wainwright. I spoke to um, Carol Willis, who's the director of the Skyscraper Museum in New York, and she actually made a very interesting point comparing this phenomenon with London. She was saying, well, you know, you have the same problem in London, but there, because we have 
streets of terraced houses, places like Kensington and Chelsea, which are being bought up by a very similar kind of international class of, of high net worth individuals. That's kind of actually emptying out the kind of vitality from the city. You know, you have whole streets now in West London where the lights are never switched on. And she was saying, at least the good thing about Manhattan is we're we're concentrating these people in very tall, very thin towers, so it doesn't affect the life on the streets. Now, I don't entirely buy that argument, but it is an interesting argument in favour of towers that if you're going to have you know housing and real estate as a, a purely an investment asset, then it's better to kind of silo these things into slender totem poles and not allow them to completely zombify a stretch of inner city London, which is what's been happening here. Tell us about uh, this New York system of transferable development rights or what are called air rights and and what part they play in the uh, the development of these pencil towers. Sure. So that's really at the nub of how they came about. You know, structural ingenuity was already there. This kind of elite class of buyers has emerged. But the key thing is is the zoning policy. So actually, it was as far back as the 1960s, they developed this system called floor area ratio, FAR, which allows you to build a certain density according to the site of your plot. So a plot with a FAR of 10 means you can build 10 times the floor area of that plot, which if you fill the entire plot, that means a 10-story building. If you just fill half the plot, that means a 20-story building and, and so on. But the crucial thing was that you could buy your neighbor's unused potential. So say the building next door hadn't filled the total FAR that they could, you're allowed to buy the kind of excess air above their building and add it to your own site. And now you could keep on doing that with sequential plots. So, so essentially developers, they spend years, sometimes decades, zigzagging their way around an urban block, buying up sequential neighbors' air rights until they have this kind of huge amount of excess potential, which allows them to go way taller than than they would otherwise be allowed to do. So that's actually how these pencil towers have happened. They're, they're often taking 10 or 20 other plots air and adding it onto their own sites, which I just think is a fascinating phenomenon. There's, there's nowhere else in the world, I think, that has that kind of air rights transfer as part of their planning policy. It seems almost bizarre. Mm. I mean, it was very appropriate for the cutthroat capital of capitalism, which is New York. You know, it's a kind of dog-eat-dog world where, you know, the person with the most money will buy the most air. And it's, it's got to the stage now where air is being traded for as much as land. You know, even in central Manhattan, where plots of land, you know, are an absolute premium, the price of air is, has equaled the price of land. So, you know, buildings like 432 Park Avenue by Raphael Vignoli, which to me is one of the most striking of these pencil towers because it stands kind of out on its own. You know, I think it took them about 15 years to acquire the air from all these other plots. And it has this very interesting accidental kind of byproduct of preservation, because once you've bought a neighbor's air, you know, it's very unlikely that they'll be able to develop that site. It's kind of preserving it in perpetuity. And there's another regulation, which is the landmark building air rights transfer. So a historic building has the right to sell its air kind of over and above an, a non-historic building. So it means all around New York, you have these funny little and large pairings, you know, with beautiful kind of historic buildings now totally overshadowed by a gargantuan tower. But but the fact that that tower is there means that the historic building is now kind of safe because it will never be redeveloped. So it's, it has, yeah, quite an interesting um, accidental preservation mechanism as part of it. And as you've hinted, they're not necessarily ugly these towers. I mean, they may be tall, they might be wafer thin, but they're not necessarily unpleasing to the eye. 
No, well, they've pushed architects to really try. I, I think, you know, architects do get excited by new possibilities. And so the fact that there is this entirely new kind of species, they've been, each architecture practice has been trying harder than the next to kind of invent the style that this new form of tower will take. So obviously in the 19... 19- 20s and 30s, the kind of golden age of the American skyscraper, we saw this kind of setback style and the emergence of, of Art Deco towers that kind of became the style of the age. And now we're seeing these pencil towers clad in all kinds of different costumes. So the one I mentioned, Raphael Vignoli's 432 Park Avenue, it, it reminds me of one of kind of Sol Lewitt's minimalist sculptures because it's a pure white concrete frame with this endless grid of kind of 10 foot square windows that just goes on and on like a kind of wireframe model and you can almost imagine it extending into infinity and then a few blocks down there's one that's been designed in a kind of neoclassical manner you know it uses all the same modern technology as as this very modern striking looking building but it's clad in alabama limestone it has this kind of honey-colored hue. The windows, you know, have sash windows, bay windows. So it's a very strange hybrid. And there's one actually that harks back to the golden age of the kind of 1930s deco style, which is going to be the thinnest. I think it's described as the most slender building in the world because it has a slenderness ratio of 1 to 24. And there they've kind of feathered the setbacks. So rather than stepping back in great chunks, you know, like the Empire State Building, every couple of floors it steps back. So in profile, it looks like a quill pen, I suppose, literally like the end of a feather as it gets thinner and thinner as it reaches towards the clouds. So no, there are some very inventive responses to these, this new species of tower. Now, pencil towers might be a curious New York thing, but problems with density are universal. Australia's three major cities, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, have seen a clumping effect in the past half decade, with collections of tightly packed residential high-rise mushrooming across the inner city areas. A recent conference of leading urban designers in Sydney heard such developments were unnecessary and a risk to the health and well-being of residents. Architect Andrew Nimmo says in Australia, the problem isn't one of thinness, quite the reverse. Our residential high-rise, he says, are often too fat. Andrew is the immediate past president of the New South Wales Institute of Architects. The problem with a very fat building is the ratio of the external wall to the internal floor area. And as the building gets fatter, that ratio gets smaller and smaller, which means that each apartment has less opportunity to get natural light, less opportunity to get good cross ventilation because the, the apartments become very, very deep and you probably get a lot of single aspect apartments. And a single aspect apartment means it's going to have very, very limited access to natural light and natural ventilation. So that's the problem with fat apartments. And because of that, they're unhealthy, you would say? Yeah, I think there's a few issues there with, for talking about high rise buildings. There's, you know, once you get above four to five stories, you're not likely to use the stairs to go up and down. You're going to be relying on the lift. So it tends to encourage a less active lifestyle. And if it's in a location where perhaps it's not close to public transport or it's not close to shops, then you're likely to hop in your car, drive into the basement car park, go straight up the lift. So there's very little interaction, very little socialisation, very little action on the street, which is not great. So that's one part of it. The other part is that 
part of health is, I mean, there's two aspects. There's the physical health, but there's also mental health. And both these are improved with improved amenity and natural light and natural ventilation is a big part of that. Getting fresh air in, getting good natural light in. I mean, it's, it's interesting if you do surveys, whether it's office workers or people in apartments and ask them what do they want the most, natural light, natural ventilation are the two that always come up first. So why do we still see uh, these big, uh, blocky high-rises being built in our, our major capital cities? Well, it comes down to profit. Basically, there's a, a ratio we have called the floor space ratio, which is the ratio of how many square metres of floor area you get in relation to the site area. And the bigger the building for a developer, the more money they're going to make. It's a, it's a simple equation. We can't blame the developers for trying to get as much into that site as they can. If they can get away with it, then they will. And that's how they make their money. Density in itself, when it's done well, is a very, very positive thing. The more density you have, the better opportunities you have for all the other things that you need, such as good public transport. If you've got good density, you can get good public transport working because you've got the, a critical mass of people. If you've got good density, you're more likely to be able to have good shopping centres. You can have good quality parks because there's money for them. And you also tend to get much better socialisation and surveillance. I mean, architects and urban designers talk a lot about surveillance because that's what makes people feel safe. If they feel like when they're walking down the street, there are lots of people looking at them, watching them, that they feel like they can look ahead and see what's in front of them. You get good surveillance, you're feeling safe. So they're all the things that matter. Now, there are lots of examples around the world, whether it's you know in places like Paris or Copenhagen or, or Barcelona, where they have quite high densities, but the quality of living there is still considered very, very high by all standards. So it's not the density itself that's the problem, it's the way we do it. And often when we go for that density, we don't necessarily back it up with the kind of improvements in the public domain that we should at the same time. If you look at the level of design in Sydney or Melbourne, you get very different outcomes when you look at the towers. Timothy Moore, lecturer in architecture at Monash University. So if you look at the towers in the city of Sydney or if you look at the towers around Queen Victoria Market in Melbourne, they're designed very differently. So in Melbourne, you can have an above ground car park, whether in Sydney where it's much more difficult to do so before regulation. So what you see is quite a high disconnect of this social interaction on the street. So you find a lot of the conversations or the interaction on the street level disappears because it's, it's consumed by car parks. And often the best point of interaction between the street and a house or an apartment is on the first five or six levels because that's where you can recognise people's faces. So I think there's a lot of challenges around how to design for density that could be much improved in Australia. So raw profit, making money regardless of social impact, is responsible for the mushrooming of fat residential high-rise in Australia, designed for the not-so-well-off, and the pencil tower phenomenon in New York, catering to the extremely well-off. In the process developers are making a lot of money. But at what cost? As the high-rise grows, so too does the global housing crisis, according to the UN. It's the one riddle that seems almost impossible to solve. Look at any major city, regardless of political or economic system, and the chances are it's not solved the basic issue for its citizens, how to strike a balance between supply and demand for housing. And in that dilemma lies a real human rights problem, at least according to the UN's Special Rapporteur for Adequate Housing, Leilani Faha. 
She was appointed in 2014. When the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights actually did a, a report on the global housing crisis. And it was the first time housing had really been framed as a, a kind of humanitarian, you know, human rights crisis. I mean, we all complain about house prices and the influx of developers to our cities and how homes are being bought by overseas investors. But this was really, you know, when a UN special rapporteur says this is a global kind of human rights crisis, people really start to take it seriously. And she used this term financialization, basically meaning that housing is no longer seen as a place to live, kind of home. It's primarily seen as a financial asset. So after the 2008 financial crisis, when the bank stopped lending, a lot of kind of institutional capital was, was put into housing as the ultimate kind of commodity. Like it, it became the kind of prime form of investment, you know, real estate development all around the world. And it's become the kind of asset of choice, you know, along with rare wine and colored diamonds. It's, it's what investors, you know, like to put their money in because it's safe. It's a place for kind of flight capital to find a, a safe haven. But I suppose that the, the product of that is that when housing is seen as a financial asset and not as a home, buildings respond accordingly. And so we're seeing neighborhoods, you know, entire chunks of cities around the world being developed with the global institutional investor in mind and not the future resident. So, you know, there was a scandal a couple of years ago in London about these things called poor doors where, you know, you have a block of luxury flats and then the so-called affordable housing around the side, which has its own kind of side entrance next to the bins, nicknamed to the poor door. You know, it's phenomena like that where we're just seeing development not being designed with communities and, and places in mind. They're just very kind of coarse, cutthroat, speculative Developments. It's happening all across the world. It's not just confined to London or, or New York. In one sense, though, finance has always, or money has always, had a major impact on the sort of housing that's built and where that housing is built, hasn't it? It has, but I just think it's reached a tipping point now. I mean, levels of homelessness in London have, have skyrocketed. The number of affordable homes being built has dropped by about two thirds over the last 10 years. You know, we used to build thousands of council homes every year. You know, to my mind, the States has a responsibility to provide housing to the most needy. And since Thatcherism, you know, it's been kind of progressively chipped away. And we're expecting developers to provide affordable housing. I think that's actually the crucial point here, that, that we shouldn't be relying on the private sector to have some kind of altruistic tendency, because obviously developers are responsible to their shareholders. You know, Why should they provide cheaper housing? I think it's up to the state to either have a kind of land value tax or, or increase other taxes and then build housing, which will be pegged to kind of median income in perpetuity, which is what we did in the post-war era. You know, we were entirely bankrupt and yet managed to build several hundred thousand homes a year. So um, no, I would argue for a return to, to that era where housing is seen as a, as a kind of human right rather than as a, a financial asset. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. The so-called financialization of housing has also found form in the growth in usage of short-term leasing platforms like Airbnb. And this is Dr Laura Cromlin's area of interest. She's with the City Futures Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. We looked at the impact of Airbnb and short-term letting more broadly on uh, housing affordability and access to housing in Sydney and Melbourne. And we found that there is an impact in terms of affordability in concentrated parts of our big cities, particularly areas that are really popular in a city and 
beachside areas, those kinds of places. And we also found that it's changing the way people think about their options in terms of housing, how they might use housing to make money, what they might do in terms of investment in the future, raising issues there in terms of inequalities between people who are already in the housing market and those who aren't. And so what are we talking about in terms of impact? How impactful? I mean, in some of those areas, you see up to some between 10 and 15% of properties that might otherwise be in the rental market that are in short-term letting. So it's a significant number. Now, whether all of those would actually go back into long-term rental if they were Airbnb were banned tomorrow, that's not clear. And certainly one of the things that we found is that some of the people we spoke to are hosts liked the flexibility of moving their property around and sometimes having it empty, sometimes having someone in there. So you can't say that you definitely get a, you know, a direct translation back into long-term rental. But some of those properties undoubtedly would go back into being homes for people for long term rather than being places for people visiting or staying short term to live in. From your research, is there a particular impact on low-income renters? These things flow through the system and inevitably the people with the fewest resources bear the brunt of it. These are already, again, areas of our cities that are relatively expensive. So, you know, tracing a direct connection doesn't necessarily work, but the people in those areas who might have to move a little bit further out then displace people in the next suburb across and so it goes. So, you know, when you're looking at affordability, I think the greatest concern needs to always be for the people who have the fewest resources because they're the ones who get hit the hardest. You also found, didn't you, that there was an impact on the investment market. In what way? We spoke to hosts, as I said, and many of them sort of told us that, you know, this has opened up a new way of thinking about property and about housing and, you know, their options. And so I think in a broader sense, one of the things that flows from these kinds of technological changes is that it's another way in which people who are already in the housing market get an extra advantage over people who aren't. So people say, oh, yeah, I might, you know, stay in my large house for a longer period because I can rent a bit of it out and cover some of my costs or thinking about options in terms of beach houses or second properties, pied-à-terres in another city. Those sorts of things become an option for people who already sort of have housing resources and can capitalise on those to expand, you know, their investments. So I think as well as the sort of, you know, immediate impact, we might see some impact over time as these sorts of options make it even harder for people who aren't yet in the market to get in because the people in there monetizing their assets in new and valuable ways. Laura Cromlin. Finally today, let's return to Timothy Moore and another interesting urban residential trend that he's been studying. Co-living generally refers to communal living outside of a traditional family structure where multiple people share a single dwelling or a shared house. There's many historical examples, and I'm sure many people have experienced it, from the kibbutz to student dormitories to share houses, you know, even older models of like Chinese roundhouses. But I'm really interested in co-living in its current context, which looks at the expanded idea of a share house organised by a corporation, usually at the scale of apartment building. So it's kind of like the hotelization of the home. And Timothy Moore calls this new form of bunking in the corporatized co-living model. And it certainly seems to be growing in popularity online. So in a corporatized co-living model, occupants rent private bedroom space, so similar to a dormitory. When I mean bedroom space, I'm talking it could be as low as 10 square metres, and it's on a rolling contract for weeks or months, but often share living and working spaces. So it's kind of like a corporatization of the commune here or dorms for grown-ups. So who's actually taking up this option and what are the reasons they're taking it up? 
like this corporatized co-living model, it's really accessible for people in above average incomes and usually in wealthy economies. So when you look at these corporatized co-living models, you see them in London, Amsterdam, Madrid, Miami, and even in Ubud. So not just people, wealthy economies itself, but also places where they like to holiday. And why I say above middle income is because the price points in Australian dollars would start at $470 per week for a bedroom in a dormitory. And for a lot of people out there, that's way above the average income. It's also interesting to look at who is allowed to enter a co-living space, one of these corporate models. So I've been looking at many case studies from around the world. And if you look at the Chinese brand U+, which has about 10,000 people across 25 branches, they have stipulations on who's allowed in. So people over 45 are discouraged. Couples with children, although the, that are antisocial and not sure what that actually means, are not permitted. And they also give preference to tech entrepreneurs. So if you look at broader trends in Australia, you're finding that there's an increase in multi-generational living. So that wouldn't be allowed in a lot of these corporate models and you can't really establish places with your friends. So it's really about the individual, young, maybe around 30, white collar. So it's very particular. And does this appeal to the same type of people who would be interested, say, in co-working spaces? I mean, it it feels very similar, doesn't it, in, in, in terms of the philosophy of it all? I think it's branded in a very similar way. And with some of these co-living spaces, so for example, Yuko in Sydney and Kinney Redfern, they do offer co-working space in the city. So you not only are you co-living, but you're also co-working as well. Which sounds a lot to me like never leaving the office. But is this more than just a fad? There's a lot of hyperbole around this market segment. And if you look at it per building, you've got about 30 to 500 people per building. And if you look at the Australian market, it's probably just a few thousand people. And if you look at it at a global level, I've documented about 100 co-living spaces. So I'd say there's hundreds of thousands of people. So it's so hyped at the moment, but I would actually say it's a more market segment, a very small market segment. And it's really appealing to a particular type of person, very much so. Now, how much of this relates to financial pressures, the financial pressures of being a young person in the modern workforce, and how much of it is about social interaction? It is about social interaction. If you think of upwardly mobile white-collar workers who are moving to another city, it's often hard to make friendship networks except through your workplace. So it does really appeal to people who had just finished university moving to another city that are looking for new friends. For affordability reasons, I actually don't think it's anything to do with housing affordability because if it's $470 to $550 per week, it's actually at a high market value and you could probably find a rental property on the market at that price. So it really is about promoting the social interaction. And if If you look at what these co-living spaces offer, you've got that private bedroom, so a really compressed private space of 10 to 20 square metres, which really forces you out into the communal areas where often it's heavily programmed around things like yoga, workouts, dinners and film nights as well. So not only do you get a bedroom, but you also get a social calendar too. So it's not disrupting the rental market then because, you know, I've seen literature that says that this is a, you know, this is changing the way in which the rental market will operate or, or has the potential to do that. In my opinion, it's a sub-segment in a broader market that I think is disrupting the rental market, which is the build-to-rent model. And, you know, that category is looking at where apartments are built not to be sold off, but to be rented. That's really interesting in this context where there's a current flattening of the investor property market. So there's a potential here to attract more occupants in a building because the space is compressed. So if your bedroom's smaller and you don't need the laundry in the kitchen, then you can fit a lot more people in the building. So this build-to-rent market, I think, may start disrupting the broader housing market, but I think the corporatized living model will not itself. Does it constitute a change in our understanding of what we mean by the home environment? 
Yeah, I, I, I think at the moment we're going through this period where there's a hotelization of the home, where it's kind of this hybrid of hotel and home. And I think it's for several reasons where we have hotel service for long-term renters. One is, I think, we see reality TV shows and we see people as marketing homes. And I also think that we see the convergence of ideals of Pinterest and Instagram as well. So people have to present the house in a certain way. But I also think there's growing consumer changes as well particularly where you see lone person households really increasing in Australia. I think about one quarter of all Australian households by 2030 will be single individuals. So I feel like this is responding to that by offering a, a new version of this. But I do feel it's not just about changing living habits, but it's also a transformation in digital technologies as well, where we are seeing access, not ownership, as being a priority of younger generations. And, you know, you see music digitized, so you don't have your your records or your tapes or your CDs anymore. Your photo albums are in the cloud. You can even get your dog walked by pet owners, or you can rent a dog for the day. You've got food delivery service like Fedora, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, where you see that the compression of the kitchen, because most people aren't cooking at a younger uh, generation. So I think there is a compression of domestic space, so of the home or the apartment size. And we're talking about inner city Australia because the complete opposite is happening on the outskirts of our cities. But definitely on the inner city in the apartments, we are seeing a compression of the home. Even it can see a compression of the bedroom. You know, you see people working on their beds with their laptops because there's no room for that desk in the apartment anymore. Architect Timothy Moore there. We also heard today from Laura Cromlin, Oliver Wainwright and Andrew Nimmo. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.